Uh, Today we are in Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at a larger passage of Scripture, 31 verses uh, in Acts chapter 4. In in preaching through the book of Acts, you have noticed probably already, sometimes we're really drilling down on just a few verses. Sometimes we're broadening that scope a little bit. Uh, I think it's helpful for you to know that when you look at a larger passage of Scripture like this, obviously, unless you all are in for like a six-hour verse-by-verse exposition, we're going to look at some themes, and there's a lot left to do with the text. Uh, if you're looking to, to drill down more into the text outside of personal study, this is what our community groups do every single week. They just look at the same passage of Scripture and deal with other elements because there's not just one direction. But I tell you that because I really had to back up with so many verses and, and look at what's happening overall. What's the, what's the uh, essence of the text in a sentence is one of the tools we use. Um, but there's just so much here. I think we could probably stay in this passage for several weeks, but we're going we're gonna to keep going. And so we're going to look at 31 verses in Acts chapter 4. And what I'll tell you about the, these, these verses, it's the first time um, in the early church that we see resistance to the gospel message in the form of arrest and jail. Uh, up until this chapter, it's felt pretty good. It's felt like one big... Um, a beautiful moment where the Holy Spirit descends and thousands are being baptized. They start with about 120 followers, and by this point, thousands more have been baptized. So, so this is kind of Acts 1 through 3 is kind of the stuff that many of us have grown accustomed, like the church needs to be happy and all the celebration all the time. But let me, I, let me just promise you this. The pattern changes in Acts chapter 4, and it stays that way. Um, The norm for the church has not been that we get to go together on a back lawn and do couples races on bounce houses. It's God's grace alone, but I'm so thankful that we get to do that. And I was, as I was sitting here contrasting, I was even thinking, and Matt, forgive me because that song is beautiful, but for a moment I thought about how I need to re-race Stacy last night. We raced last night with the bounce houses. We're going to race again tonight at the Spring Fling. Um, I beat her yesterday. I did not knock you over. Uh, she claims, <laughs> she claims that I pushed her over. And I was thinking about like I want it, like I love so many times when we have these 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 church cookouts. Like people are like, yeah, um, we can't be there because we've gotta you know trim my nails or something. Like y'all, these are not these are not just like let's just get together events. These are like truly celebrating the Lord's goodness. And I was contrasting like the ability to do that with what we read in Acts chapter four. And so let's just be thankful for that tonight. I'd love to see y'all at five. And I say that because I'm getting ready to talk about um, resistance, opposition, and even persecution. And so how we reconcile, like, do we feel guilty for getting to do this tonight? No, we don't feel guilty. We just have, I think, a, hopefully a deeper reason to celebrate getting to come together and uh, for a moment in time. And so we want to do that. But let's be very honest with you. Jesus promised many places in the Gospels, but John 15 is one I just want to share with you as we enter into the text. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And I just want us to acknowledge the very real pattern and the exception that we all have experienced uh, growing up where we have, most of us have grown up. And I just, I just need us to acknowledge for a moment that the last few hundred years uh, in this country are atypical. They're not the experience of global Christianity and they're not the experience of historical Christianity. My second fear when we enter into a text like this is that if a church and I speak church nationally, 
if a church divides itself over something as minimal as COVID, and I am not minimizing it, what will happen when we face the persecution like they faced? And so if COVID was a a soft test run of what happens when there's divisiveness and something unknown and quite honest, something fearful out there, if it does what it did to the American church, what does it look like when true persecution comes? And so I'm saying all this stuff because it's running around in my head and I just kind of got to give it to you because I'm feeling all of this as we enter this text. And I think that what we can do is one of two things. We can say in naivety and ignorance, oh, that'll never happen. Or we can say, Lord, would you, would you strengthen us in your spirit to withstand the fiery trial Jesus promises? Because that's exactly what begins to happen in Acts chapter 4. And so uh, it's a long passage. I don't know exactly how I'm going to go about it. Uh, I kind of read it all the way through at the first service. But uh, either way, let's begin by praying. Father, the boldness to advance your kingdom never came from within the human heart. The audacity to proclaim Christ and Christ alone in the midst of so many opportunities and options has never come from our own strength. And your church has never truly been built from wit or ingenuity. It has been built, the kingdom has been advanced, and boldness has been freely given through the working of your spirit, in your spirit alone. So Lord, regardless of the future events as they unfold, we understand and believe in your sovereignty that does not make them any less intimidating. But Lord, let us see the tension not only of worldviews coming at us, but at the competition with our own souls. The competition between Christ and Christ alone and a religion that makes us feel good. For this is a real threat as well. Make your church stronger from your word by your spirit. Prepare us in our hearts and our homes and our souls to no longer look for success and smooth sailing, but to rather recognize that these are lies given by the enemy about what Christian life on this earth looks like. We are called to boldly advance your kingdom in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So may we do so one moment at a time. And in Jesus' name, I pray. So the, the setting is shortly after the fellowship of the believers has occurred. The lame beggar who we learned today uh, was more than 40 years old. And that's not to make you feel old. That's to, to demonstrate the miraculous nature of the healing. But he's been healed. The people obviously see it. That gives Peter an opportunity to preach. And coming out of his sermon in Solomon's portico, we read verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. 
And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So these Sadducees and religious leaders we read in verse 5 are some of the elite rulers of the city. Verse 5 says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. These, these were the movers and shakers of religious Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, and they said, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, again, I mean, Peter just lays it to him again. They just said, hey, by what authority to heal this, this man? And he could easily say, by Jesus. No, he says, by the Jesus you crucified, the Jesus you rejected, and by Jesus, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness, if you didn't circle Holy Spirit in verse 8, do that for me, we're going to come back there, and then circle boldness in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. How are these stupid men speaking so, so profoundly? It's kind of the question. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident in all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John complied, signing the waivers, and agreed to keep Jesus silent in the public gatherings. And then the Bible ends. <laughs> But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they go back and tell of this event. This is the first time that they face this. They know more is coming, and it's coming quickly, I promise you, in the book of Acts. It's going to get real, real quick. And so when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They pray for boldness, circle that, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, circle that, and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness, circle that. I mean, this is a different world, is it not? Uh, Ten years ago, when I uh, became the pastor of Perkinsville Church, one of the first phone calls was from the local newspaper. And they wanted to do an article because in a mountain town in the South, you write articles about new pastors. <laughs> and I love it. I really do. I'm not critical of it at all. Uh, so they took the, as y'all know, the little short, fat, baby looking child named Seth out here in front of the church. And I'm standing there like this, I think, probably with like, and it's Norris uh, gets pastorate at Perkinsville Church. I forget the name of it, Perkinsville Baptist Church, something like that. I mean, there's. There's rarely, to my point about us living in a unique time in history, there is rarely, in fact, only one real time that we've experienced and lived in that the church has been celebrated amongst the pagans. I mean, there, there aren't many places in history where newspapers with pastors taking over churches, so to speak, has been like read. And I'm sure there's been people who say, well, that's good. I'm just glad they got them one. The faith that I read about in the pages of Scripture and history from the first two or three centuries are alarmingly different than the faith that we've experienced in our lifetime. We live ultimately in a land that has allowed Christianity to settle down, get comfortable, take in the sights and the sounds, and settle in for a while. And I, I don't know about you, but if you have a lot of yard work to do, outdoor work, whatever it is to do, the last thing that you need to do in that moment is sit down in your recliner. Because if you're like me, there's no getting up. You're not getting back up to go outside and deal with it, but yet the grass continues to grow, the weeds continue to take over, the mulch still needs to be laid, and all that comes with outdoor work. But that recliner is exactly what I want in that moment because it's comfortable and I think I'll just stay there for a while. That's right. <laughs> but that recliner is exactly what we as modern Christians have kind of been given in this place. And although the grass still grows tall, lostness still increases. Weeds still emerge and take over, unbeknownst to us. We remain in the chair because it's far too comfortable. And before long, over the course of time, we lose sight of the biblical church, the mission of God, the boldness entrusted to us as beneficiaries of God's saving grace, the boldness to advance the kingdom becomes overwhelmed in laziness and comfort and satisfaction in where we sit. And so we come and go expecting happiness and smooth seas when Jesus actually promises something very different altogether. Because this church, the church that Christ founded, did not sit. They did not shy away from opposition. The believers did not gather and say, what must we do to escape such opposition? They prayed and leaned into the sovereignty of God and prayed for boldness in the face of opposition to proudly continue proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Because the resistance is really predictable. Here's how you predict resistance to the gospel. If you are faithfully living and proclaiming the gospel, you will receive resistance. Maybe opposition, and ultimately that leads to persecution in lands and places, perhaps even this one. So the purpose and predictability of resistance is the first thing that I just draw your attention to. It's beginning a pattern in the book of Acts that, as I said already, will continue through all the early churches we read about in Scripture and will continue beyond that. Many times we look at the fourth century when Constantine, the emperor, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this uh, the Roman Empire, Christian Empire, and we say, oh, it must be peaceful. And never has there been peace across the world in the name of Jesus. 
And the reason for this is, is the gospel as a value system and as a, as a system of truth is not reconcilable with any other worldview. Any other worldview. It's not reconcilable with universalism. It's not reconcilable with, with, with paganism. It's not reconcilable with Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or individualism. And John Stott says it best. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. That's what happens when people can't change you by resisting you and can't change you by opposing you. You then become the target of elimination and people persecute you. I mean, here you have a theological system at war because the Sadducees did not believe in any resurrection. We know this. So they didn't like the idea that that Peter, John, and the other apostles were teaching the resurrection. That was a theological system. But is that really what bothered them? Is that really what bothered them? Like, if that's the case, there's nothing that we can identify with necessarily. We, We all probably believe the gospel, believe it at least in the head, or perhaps truly have surrendered our lives to Jesus. But, but is that really the issue? Or is it significant that, that Luke includes these religious leaders not just as religious people, but as the most influential and thereby powerful religious leaders? Is there something else informing them? And is it their threat to power? The idea that Christ and Christ alone is Lord here? We recognize that there are multiple worldviews coming at the Christian gospel just rapidly every single day. Uh, Phil Ginn, one of our elders, is president of Southern Evangelical Seminary and writes on this topic weekly, looking across our country and Western culture, acknowledging those places where worldviews are constricting upon like a snake on its prey, constricting upon the biblical gospel until it's choked out and in their mind eradicated. But I just want to acknowledge something before we move on about the reality of resistance. Many of us right now in this room, I think according with the text, are looking at external resistance. What kind of opposition is coming at us, whether it be from LGBTQ+, ideology, Muslims, uh, uh, just secular, humanism, uh, any other worldview. Maybe you're saying that's coming at us. And yes, it is. And we're going to talk about responding to that in just a second. But remember that I said that that resistance is not just an external truth, it's an internal one too. And I think the American church and us at Perkinsville need to consider what's happening internally as well within our own hearts and souls. Because it's not just those worldviews out there that are not reconcilable with the gospel, irreconcilable value systems. There's something at work in this text that I see beyond Judaism and the gospel And it is this internal value system of individualism, success, prosperity, wealth, and popularity, control, and power. I think that's what they're really wrestling with in this moment. And I'm not suggesting the text says that. But I am suggesting there's something deeper than just preaching a resurrection. And I think it is this value system that must be confronted and repented of first in the Western church. I think all of us in this room recognize that there is external threats, there's external resistance, there's external opposition, and there's external persecution perhaps to come. But in doing so, are we overlooking the responsibility I believe we have first to look at ourselves in the mirror before a holy God and evaluate, is there resistance in our very own hearts? Because the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified 
And selflessness and service and sacrifice for others contradicts and conflicts with the value system of individualism, pull yourself up by the bootstrapism, success, prosperity, wealth, and popularity. I think this is what has created this false notion straight out of hell that the church is primarily made for happiness rather than holiness. That has made us believe that we come in this place to be confirmed, not confronted. To be served rather than to serve. To be coddled rather than convicted. I have not seen this much of this type of stuff as I have in the last year or so. And what we're wrestling with is this individualism that tells us this is about me. Brothers and sisters, there is persecution coming. There is opposition that exists right now in this moment, the minute we look outside these walls. And there is resistance more than, more than I care to tell you about. And, and certainly you know much about it. If You can't avoid it in the news headlines. But, but let's not overlook in the name of all the external reality that is coming upon us, the internal battle for our very souls that exists in this moment, in this church, and churches just like it all over the West. That we have value systems that prop ourselves up that come in conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would say, stand in direct contrast, and the, and the devil loves us. It's damnable stuff to live our whole lives believing that we can hold Jesus and the gospel of sacrifice and a man dying on a cross for our sins to give up ourselves in order to die to self, that we can hold that and it can, it can walk in unison jointly with our pursuits of individualism, success, prosperity, wealth, and popularity together. As Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And this is why people get mad and ugly, us, ourselves, others, whether it's the, the, the Sadducees of the day. This is why, because when you face resistance with the truth of the gospel, you get mean. I get mean. They get mean. You get ugly. So who are we, church, if we have not examined our own hearts and the resistance against this truth? Who are we to prepare for external resistance, opposition, and even persecution? It's so easy to write about it, talk about it. But this is a call, first of all. This begins and ends with the individual heart of every single one of us. And to repent of whatever value systems we're holding on to that are not Christ and Christ alone. And so now we can move on because this powerful message, I think obviously they're dealing with something a little different than we are in context. They are not dealing with an institutional religion that has been in the recliner, so to speak, of culture. And so there's a lot of that that's been going on. Listen, to follow Christ in this, in this era was, I mean, there was, there, was, there was a gut check, heart check, soul check, every check in the book check. Because there was nothing appealing about this on this earth. There was no benefit to becoming a Christian in the first century on this earth. And even them, in the strength they are, know that their strength is not found in themselves. They pray and ask for boldness repeatedly. And there's one commitment here. And, and, and ultimately, brothers and sisters, like we have always a, a choice to make with regard to this. And uh, every Christian has a choice to this. It is to listen to God or man. And that's exactly what happens in the middle of the text. 
Because Peter can't help, John can't help, the apostles can't help but to preach Christ and Christ alone. They, they can't help it. Like there is not an alternative. The alternative is given, stop preaching Christ. They're like, I, it's impossible. Here's why it's impossible. Because there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the world can't stand that. They make you feel bad about it even. Pressure to capitulate comes in the name of love, right? If you love people, you wouldn't say such things. If you were accepting and tolerant. If you were truly about equity, inclusion, and diversity. If I hear those three words put together one more time. Like there are some of the, the, honestly, in our world, leaders, secular leaders, business leaders, university leaders, hospital leaders, they're the, they're the least creative people I've ever met. And I'll be very honest, like the chancellor at our university, it's like, what is your vision? Equity, diver- diversity, inclusion. Like really? And they accuse us of reading a script. These words are so mushy, nobody knows what they mean. Feed me another jello sandwich. But we're falling for it. You're falling for this. Our children are falling for this. New educators are falling for this. They're believing it because they're not discerning what they're being given by and through the Holy Spirit of God. Pressure to capitulate and give in on the exclusivity of Christ comes with an alphabet soup of pretty words. Non-discrimination. You don't want to discriminate, do you? You want to include. You want to be equitable and diverse and fair. What is fair? Pressure comes in the name of pretty words. The devil's not up there. Like I said just the other day, he's not like the youth skit devil that we've been given. The guy offering you a fifth of Jack and a line of Coke. That's not how the devil gets at you. He gets at you with pretty words. Flowered up words that make you feel like a lesser human than you would be if you didn't capitulate on the gospel because you're loving. You want to be loving. You want to be inclusive and welcoming and all those things. So just, just, just let Christ be for you. And all these other people, let them explore. But who are you to judge? And we've got Christians every day falling over like weak-kneed little followers of a less-than-sovereign Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ and Christ alone. This message, this gospel proclamation is the only truth on which the church was built and will be sustained. With so much pressure and opposition in our own souls and the promised persecution to come and the persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing across the world in this very moment, how can a Christian survive, right? That's kind of the question. I almost sometimes hear hopelessness. What is this world coming to? This world is coming to the same thing it has been coming to since the beginning. Believe me, I promise you, in the last 75, 80 years, there's not anything new that every generation has not experienced, and maybe even far worse. This world is constantly declining. So how do we survive, brothers and sisters? Well, for the Baptist in the room, I jest. This may be the first time you've heard this. The Holy Spirit of God. He is how we survive. Let's look back at the passage. What is ultimately being said here? 
in the midst of the first resistance to the gospel, the first opposition to the gospel, we see Luke inserting these clues in the text. Verse 8. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Also in verse 31, the exact same language is used, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I think for some of you, if you're raised in Baptist traditions where the Holy Spirit, he was kind of this it force, you imagine them jumping up with tambourines and singing in other languages. That's, that's, that's what to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to Baptists. And we're like, ugh. Um, this is different than Pentecost in the sense that we see the, I mentioned this when, when we looked at Acts 2, the filling of the Holy Spirit is used repeatedly in the book of Acts from this point forward. In this event, the filling of the Holy Spirit has one result. Boldness. Boldness because no human in their right mind, leaning in on their own strength, their own ability, their own experiences, has self-preservation in mind. No human is going to say the things they say out of their own strength. Not only, yeah, I mean, they, maybe a human, maybe one of y'all be like, yeah, Jesus saved, Jesus healed him. No, they say, yes, this man was healed in the name of the one you crucified and rejected. And this Jesus, this Jesus is the only name under heaven given by which all must be saved. There is not an, an ounce of human strength in any of this passage in their response. This is what they pray for. They pray for and get boldness. Could it be that the Spirit of God is most primarily concerned with the advancement of the Father's kingdom? Could it be that we have mystified the Holy Spirit of God in an effort and probably encouraged by the enemy as to dismiss and forget about His work? Could it be that we view the Holy Spirit more as a force than a person? And not just in how we respond. Oh, oh, well, I believe he's a person, but really we look at him like a force, almost like, like two magnets, right? It's a force of magnets. They come together, but the Bible doesn't speak about the Holy Spirit as a force. 60% of evangelicals view the Holy Spirit as a force. He's a person. The Scriptures demonstrate him as a person, as a knowable, relatable person. He speaks, Acts 13. He teaches, John 14. He guides, Acts 8. He is obeyed, Acts 10. He's walked with, Galatians 5. He is grieved, Ephesians 4. And he wants us to know him. To be known worshiped and even enjoyed because when you try to build a church or a ministry on your own strength you know what you get you get a ministry of your own strength when you try to follow christ on your own strength you get a walk that is secured only by your ability to stay within the lines but a church built upon the spirit That's a church of the Spirit's strength. And a follower of Christ who follows Christ by the Spirit's leading, that's a follower who's guaranteed and protected by the Spirit. So without the Spirit, y'all, let's just be honest, there's no continued preaching of Jesus from Acts 4 forward. I mean, prior to this time, things are looking pretty great. baptizing people, they're fellowshipping, life is actually pretty good. 
And so we're all hanging out. Things are good. It's like those old conversations that happen in the community of Boone still in southern places all over the, the world. How's your church, brother? I love that question. <laughs> what do you mean? How's your church? Well, we've been down since the COVID. Or the most famous one is this. Uh, it's, uh, it's just not the same. It's not as good as it used to be. I've heard lots of people say that about lots of churches. It's not as good as it used to be. Because it's supposed to be good, I guess. It's supposed to be happy and bubbly all the time. We just have lots of good times. If Seth built a church on my own strength, that's the type of church we'd have. We just, we literally just hang out all the time. But that's not, that's not the measure of faithfulness. And it's not the picture of the church we see formed in Scripture. And oh, how I want it to be. Can I admit that to y'all? I want it to be that way. Don't you, Lindsay? I mean, just wouldn't it be great? Like one big bounce house all the time? <laughs> like the old theme song of Cheers. Don't, don't, y'all don't lie. You know that song by heart. Everybody knows your name. Norm's there. I mean, it's funny how similar churches have been to the conversation around the Cheers bar. Norm's talking about his post postmaster job. They're just talking about life, but never really the mention of why we gather. But it's just not what we see historically, y'all. Let's be honest. If you can survive in a church on your own strength, you're probably not in a, in a kingdom-advancing, kingdom-minded church. If you can stay in a place on your own strength, they're probably not doing the big work by the Spirit. I so want us as a church, and I speak, I speak about the West as a whole, but I, I just, I know we're not ready. I know that the minute... Historically, in the first century, as the church grew here, when the Roman emperors started cutting off heads and crucifying them, two-thirds of the church members left. And I look at the strength of the church then, and I say, my goodness, what would happen now? You know, it's only the Spirit of God. He's the only one who's going to do this. If you're here on your own strength, if you're serving on your own strength, if you're trying to be on your own strength, you'll never survive. We will, we will never see kingdom advancement on our own strength. It's, it's got to be the Spirit of God. I, I, I don't, to be bold to proclaim Christ and Christ alone in this era, I mean, shoot, y'all, to proclaim Christ and Christ alone in my own heart in the morning when I wake up. That's not me. I think a lot of us in this room have spent a lot of our lives leading the Christian journey on our own strengths and our own words. And I think that we have a lot of spiritless lives. I know that I'm often guilty of that, failing to acknowledge His goodness, His mercy, and His love, and seeing Him as a person. And so the conclusion as we enter a long season of of persecution and difficulty and continued salvations in the book of Acts. 
my challenge is to is to seek the spirit and that's not some mystical journey that's not like a puzzle that you have to go figure out what does that mean like this if you're in Christ if you have repented and by repentance repent turning from who you are a dead man walking depraved, broken, rebellious, rightly do all the judgment of God's holiness in that moment, and yet simply by repenting and surrendering to Jesus. When you surrender to Jesus, He does not leave you, but rather He sends His guarantee of your salvation in the very Spirit of God Himself. Without the Spirit of God, there is no salvation. He is a sign a guarantee, a promise. So to seek him, it's not a puzzle. It is simply a confession. Surrender to Jesus. It's not just asking into the heart, putting a bow on him. It's not just saying, I want you to be a part of my life. It is surrendering all your aspirations and your self-built dreams and saying, Jesus, you are better. And he will so graciously give you the spirit of the living God to lead you in boldness the rest of your days. And so, Father, of all the things we could pray, there are many but in this moment in time, I pray that it is your spirit who leads our days and leads our future. Who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. When everything in us wants to fear the future, your spirit leads us to boldly proclaim the truths of your word. What I pray for most is that we are and will remain steadfast, not in our own ability, our own strengths, but rather in the spirit of the living God. So speak, O Lord, as you have faithfully through your word. May the spirit awaken our sleeping souls to the call of Christ and Christ alone in a world that seemingly befriends us, but yet rejects us all the more and is becoming more and more abundant. Let us lead in the power of the Spirit, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, Spirit-led lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.